In most of human history, people have parented the way their parents and grandparents did, with culture providing the cues. We call this Parenting 1.0. For various reasons, parents began to question these approaches, and we started turning more and more to so-called experts to learn to parent. This was the beginning of Parenting 2.0. This allowed for some real advances, but also a lot of confusion as we got further and further away from our natural parenting instincts. Parenting 3.0 is about reclaiming those instincts and integrating them with our current understanding of child development. It brings together the wisdom of the past with the best scientific and psychological research of the present. Parenting 3.0 isn't a fad or a quick fix. It's a set of principles that allows us to engage with our kids and life from an informed and empowered place. I'm Jai Flicker. And I'm Deb Blum. Welcome, Welcome to, to Parenting, Parenting 3.0. 3.0. Hi, everyone. Welcome to part two of our attachment series. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go check that out. Today, we're going to be starting off exploring something called the strange situation. Very interesting research. We hope you enjoy the show. So I would love for you to talk more about, yeah, like let's just go into uh, attachment 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 theory. We've talked a lot about what it's sort of not. I mean, we've hinted at what it is and why it's important, but, but let's talk about attachment theory and mm-hmm. and one other thing i want to do as we as we start to get into this is is talk about where most people and including myself when i first heard about attachment theory i heard about it in a in a framework that's super useful and interesting and helpful that i want to explore right now but that is just the tiniest tip of a much bigger iceberg than i ever imagined existed in terms of the full attachment theory (laughs) yes and for me personally what you're going to talk about actually in some ways confused me actually me too a little bit yes i'm just giving people the heads up that that. it might be a little confusing and then but the attachment theory in my opinion as we describe it is actually less Less confusing confusing. yeah Yeah. i agree 100 percent. love that so basically okay so a lot of people have heard of attachment theory if I can summarize it as the way that we bond with our parents, mostly our mothers, but also our parents in the first few years of life. And the idea is sort of, we can either have a secure attachment then or an insecure attachment. And that shapes how we bond with other people, especially our, you know, intimate future, intimate partner, um, for life. That's mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit deterministic and or fatalistic in that sense, <laughs> and um, it's like well you you know hopefully you got it good and if you didn't oh well so, you know you're gonna just have problems. I think it's a useful construct. It helps. It I think it's popular for a reason because it is a very short, relatively simple idea that people can kind of grasp onto and 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 see it in, in their own life. You know, it's like yeah, if you had a really loving, supportive nurturing warm connection with your parents you're probably gonna be able to access that and and bring that into your adult relationships and vice versa so so it's not like that's completely wrong it's just that it's such a small part of the whole story yeah 
those um, distinctions of of which I'll get into more um, actually came from a very specific place. Um, a researcher by the name of and psychologist by the name of Mary Ainsworth, who actually worked with John Bowlby, the the godfather of attachment theory. Um, Newfeld, you know, points out he didn't invent attachment theory. He came up with a name for it, which was a huge contribution, but not. He said people have been studying attachment for literally thousands of years and talking about attachment, just not using that word right. and the importance on, uh, of, of, of having a word in, in science, in, in a discipline to organize around is, is no small thing because it allows someone like him and, and everyone interested to bring together all this disparate research and form it into one coherent body of research and so it's you know what Newfeld has done and we'll get into this is integrated these thousands of years of insights into human nature and human relating under this banner of attachment theory which John Bowlby coined in the 50s basically yeah okay so Mary Ainsworth was working with John Bowlby directly and she went on and did some very um, useful um, research she first studied I, i'm going to read some of this here she first studied she she was doing some observations in the field um she said uh it says i'm, I'm reading from a book called attachment disturbance disturbances in adults um which um is all about actually treating attachment disturbances in adults <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's sort of the Very name profound. sort of says <laughs> says it all there, um, but is uh, authored by co-authored by um, a psychologist and meditation teacher Dan Brown, Daniel P. Brown, who I have I, I got to know as a meditation teacher, and then it turned out he was also a, an attachment theorist and and psychologist, and I was like, kind of no wonder I like his teaching so much, <laughs> but um, but yeah, he's so he studied this and written about it and. Um, so I'm reading from that book right now. It says um, that Ainsworth saw the value of direct observation in the natural environment. And in 1954, she started her first major research project using direct observation of infant parent interactions in Uganda. Okay, so this was a brand new thing to go observe actual parents and infants interacting and start to categorize and start to try to... Um, see how different t- styles of relating l- led to different outcomes. Mm-hmm. This was so, um, it says in the early 1960s, Ainsworth started a second direct observational study of child-mother interactions, this one of American mothers and infants in Baltimore. In this study, she hoped to collect further data on the distinct patterns of attachment she had initially observed in Uganda. In this naturalistic observational study of babies in their family home environment, Ainsworth observed that the American infants showed most of the same attachment behaviors that their Ugandan counterparts did. So So she was starting to see this is not just... It's not culturally specific. It transcends that, which mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the reasons it's such a powerful theory. Yes. It's really... a We're really talking about human nature, not mm-hmm. a particular version of or a particular cultural um style right so 
I'm going to skip ahead here because what they did was they, they, they devised this experimental method called the strange situation. And, um, and basically it was, um, they wanted to see what was, what would happen with different toddlers when their mother would leave the room. And then when they would bring in a stranger that's why it's called the strange situation and then they so they would have these people go in and out of the room and and do different things and and here's the actual eight stages of this and um it's just helpful to get a picture of how did how did they how did researchers start to come up with these different classifications so stage one was the infant and his or her mother are introduced to an unfamiliar playroom in which a large array of toys are strewn around the room to encourage exploratory behavior in the child. Two, the mother and infant are observed for three minutes. Three, in the next three minute sequence, a stranger enters and is at first silent, then converses with the mother, then initiates interaction with the infant. This episode ends when the mother leaves the room. Four, the stranger is in the room with the baby for three minutes, first, um, this is called the first separation, or less if the baby becomes overly distressed. Five, in the next three-minute sequence, the mother returns and comforts the infant, first reunion, and the stranger leaves. After the mother leaves, a second time, the infant is alone for three minutes. Seven, the stranger returns and focuses on the infant for three minutes, and then eight, the mother returns and comforts the infant while the stranger leaves. Okay, so basically you have the mother playing with the child and then the stranger comes in and talks to the mother and then interacts with the child and you're st and they're starting to see like how receptive to this stranger is this child and then when what what do they do when the mom leaves what do they do when the mom comes back and 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 they what they started to see and i'm going to go into this more right now but they started to see that some babies were more connected to their mothers some were less connected some were more clingy some were more easily consoled if after the mother left and some were less easily consoled so they started realizing like okay there are difference in in the ways the, these these patterns of interaction between mothers and infants and they started to also correlate those different types of of behaviors with the style the styles of the mothers mm -hmm. okay is this making sense yep okay makes a lot of sense okay so it does make me want to think of try to find something to put in the show notes to show. I, I had watched a YouTube video once uh, that showed this the process. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great idea. So we'll 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 come up with something if maybe that same yeah. video. Yeah. So basically, what they found originally were three different types. There was sort of a securely attached child, right? And then there were two other insecurely attached types they, that they found uh, eventually they found a fourth type but um that wasn't until later so initially um these these securely attached infants showed significantly greater exploratory behavior when the infant and mother were in the room together so so i i, I meant to mention this before but basically the early construct of attachment showed two sides two kind of rhythms there was the like connection part and then there was the exploration part and they then they in the uh, bulby himself observed that babies who were and infants and toddlers who were more securely attached to their mothers mostly but to their parents were 
far more likely to venture out and explore their environment, which is um, was actually surprising at first because they were looking at attachment as a proximity seeking drive. So yeah. pr- and proximity is about closing the gap closing and, and finding the the secure mm-hmm. parent right it's like when a child is feeling shy and leans in and hugs the leg that's attachment and it's this proximity seeking drive so then they thought well why would the more securely attached why would they go out mm-hmm. and that's 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 the opposite of proximity and of course the answer is that they knowing that they had that secure base they were more confident that they could go further away and not worry about it because if they did sort of get into trouble or once they felt like they were ready for connection again they could easily come Mm -hmm. get it they were not preoccupied with maintaining that connection right which is a very key piece to attachment theory I just want to make sure we point out that you know being the secure base yeah that's actually a really key piece to it you know for sure so, so basically, that's what they found in this strange situation mm. experiment was that the, that the infants who had the most um, secure attachment were, uh, had showed greater exploratory behavior. Let's see what else. Um, they also showed greater proximity and contact seeking behavior toward the mother than the stranger, right? So that was, they weren't just equally as intrigued by the people if they were intrigued. Um, they also showed healthy protest behavior after the mother left. So they were like, no, don't leave me. Mm-hmm. Um, continued exploratory behavior in the presence of the stranger. So they weren't completely freaked out by that either. Less crying and more exploratory behavior um, when left alone. And um, less resistance and, con- uh, and greater contact seeking in both reunions. Okay, so it was sort of better at every stage in a sense. But so, um, so that's when there was a secure base of attachment. And then there were these two ways that the insecure attachment could show up. One was avoidant and one was, they called it ambivalent, but I would call it more, um, um, anxious. Mm -hmm. So, so the avoidant type of, of insecurity was they, they had the, the infant had sort of learned that they couldn't quite rely on that secure base and so they just said well i'm not gonna i'm, I'm gonna stop looking for it and so they were higher on the exploratory behavior and lower on the proximity seeking so mm. they would go well let me read it it says group they called it group a for avoidant group a infants were characterized by avoidance of the mother these infants showed significant resistance to physical contact with the mother Avoidant infants showed strong exploratory behavior and well, there you go. And might someone think that's like, oh, look how independent they are. Totally. Yeah. Totally. This is which. Yeah. yeah. So you can get a little confused yeah. because you can think, oh, look they're at my independent little one. They don't even need me. Yeah. And and that's that could. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. So that's a great point. Um, on the other side, they found these, um, uh, they're calling them group C infants, and they originally called them conspicuous contact or interaction resisting behavior. Anyway, uh, they're just 
Group C, okay? And um, <laughs> it says, Group C infants cried significantly more than infants from the other groups during episode two, in which the infant is with the mother in an exploratory context. So so they were more the clingy type. Maybe that's C for clingy. Um, they, um, they were preoccupied with maintaining that connection. Um, and so the, and they, they never felt like they could trust it, so they wouldn't explore. Um, yeah. It says, um, in addition, they expressed or displayed difficulty in being comforted upon reunion, um, which the, the researchers thought that re- that reflected the e- extreme distress in the separation episode. So so this is why they called it originally ambivalent because they would be clingy and then the mother would leave and then they'd be freaking out and then when the mother came back instead of being clingy still then they would be sort of harder to sort of comfort Mm -hmm. so which makes sense but um is sad it is sad yeah (laughs) so 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 um so this is why i think it's now sort of called anxious um, right there's this clinginess, and then and then later on they discovered um, what is called disorganized attachment, which sort of didn't fit into any of the other three patterns. And uh, for for simplicity's sake, it's sort of like a mix of them, and it's just sort of all over the place. And it seems to be related to more severe trauma, where mm-hmm. where um, these these babies would be like at one minute really rejecting and then another minute like really clingy and then um and then maybe rejecting again and then like show just uh sort of erratic right in their in their behavior so so those are sort of the current four categories and um just to kind of for me uh, to help keep track of them all i think of it as just their secure and then there's insecure and of the insecure types of attachment you could either be sort of clingy or sort of avoidant or dismissive or you know venturing out but not wanting that closeness and then there's this fourth category of just kind of being all over the place that's great you know why i realized why i was confused by it all this time it was because <clears throat> when i would look at it i would look at it as an adult try to figure out what i am yeah <laughs> and of then course. but then i didn't feel like i even though I knew attachment from like Newfelt's attachment, I still wasn't exactly sure how to connect all of the pieces. Yeah, you know, and I'm not suggesting you should do that right now. Maybe, maybe, but um, but like I, I think I wanted to know well, what do I, I like besides what I need to do to create secure attachment. That one was more clear. Like I kind of was, what do I need to not do? You know, how do mm. we create? these other things and even though I felt like I remember reading about it and I just I definitely felt like it was much better for me to put that aside a little bit for sure. and then just come into attachment theory the the way that I think you know both of us really feel through Newfeld and through the approach of like okay how can I reawaken my natural yeah. instincts instead yeah. of getting all caught up in the fear of right right or even oh my gosh, or even just the categorization I I definitely think there's 
it was kind of a fun thing to kind of go, okay, well, what am I? What's yeah. my attachment mm-hmm. style? Mm-hmm. And to kind of oversimplify it. And, 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 and I, there are surveys or whatever that are not surveys, but assessments Is you it, can mm-hmm. take online that kind of says, oh, you have generally this style of attaching. And then it would be like, okay, I'm a, this kind of attacher. And what does that mean? And it was a nice, simple paradigm to kind of grab onto yep. but I, th- I completely had the same experience where once I started learning the fuller version of attachment theory from Newfeld, I was like you know what I'm gonna just not even try to like integrate this in I'm just gonna set that aside it didn't even seem yeah. useful really right. anymore right that's kind of how I feel about yeah. it yeah it's sort of like anything when as soon as we start labeling we, we start putting ourselves in a box as if like you're just fixed there. Like yeah. That's who you are, and yeah. then that's just what you do have to deal with. And I think I know for me, and I think for you too, that I, I want to have a much more hopeful view on this and you know not look at this. And, and again, go back to the part that we said before that like it's never too late. Yes. And, you know, and, and ideally, it's never too late, meaning the parent can step into the role of prioritizing attachment with their child. But even still, people who are avoidant or anxious you know whatever you know and whatever if you take that assessment and you find out that you are it's still we aren't we as adults aren't lost causes either that's that's right and and actually i think there was um even in the literature a a belief or at least a hypothesis that it's like you you have these this window of attachment development at zero to three and then it gets fixed and that's it and and Newfeld is extremely clear about that being an incorrect yeah. conclusion and that this construct of attachment is so deep and so ancient it's it's always available and as soon as it gets activated it starts being helpful and beneficial and healing and 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 growth supportive so um that's obviously yeah ho- super helpful to know i mean um, for both us, for our own attachment uh, challenges that we might face as adults and, and in our parenting, and then also for our own kids. Yeah, for, for sure. Sh- for sure. I mean, and there's more and more, we, we see more and more people who are now bringing this to marriage relationships. And so there's a way that attachment, you know, people now see attachment is like, it's life. It's, it's being human. It's part of it. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's really hard to even appreciate that without people understanding what attachment theory is. And I think you do a great job of explaining it in a way that is really clear. And I think that it's the reason why it's important to me is because so much of what we talk about, what we plan to talk about, is really rooted in attachment theory. And so without understanding this for people, I think it might leave people a little bit lost every once in a while. And so it's a good, it's like a a good primer for future conversations. Yeah. It's such a foundational concept in what I think both of us um, are going to be talking about and, and how we think about parenting and supporting children. So, um, so yeah, so I'll, I'll just dive in here. I mean, Almost everything I'm about to share is, is is really coming from Dr. Gordon Newfeld, Canadian psychologist and and developmental theorist, and um, and he just gives the most comprehensive um, kind of theoretical framework uh, of attachment and how it works 
that I've found anywhere. So, so, um, so I think people will see as we get into this, just how uh, rich this material is and how much more, how, how much deeper it goes than just, is, are you, do you have a secure attachment or an insecure attachment? And as helpful as that is, um, this just, it just kind of, it go, that is such a tip of a much bigger iceberg. For sure. So, so um, basically, Newfeld defines attachment as a drive that um, relates to the pursuit of proximity. And, and to me, proximity, that word, I'm using it because he does, but, and it, and it over, over time has come to mean something different than just what it did when I first was uh, introduced to it. But closeness, I think, is, is a more intuitive word there. Mm-hmm. Uh, pursuit of connection and closeness. Um, and it can be physical closeness and, it, and it's also psychological closeness. And, um, and so there's this very basic human drive for, for proximity. Um, and the reason it's so uh, prime, primary is because um, that's how we get our needs met, both emotional but even also physical when we're when we're born is through relationship we can't there are many animals that when they're born they actually can just walk immediately and go start eating food you know on their own but obviously human infants are not able to do that so so the the primary drive is to bond um Neufeld, interestingly he has a chemistry background and so he kind of does this thing that i love where he says well it's not just that attachment is is fundamental to humans and 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 even animals he says it's also a a fundamental principle of the entire universe and says that if you look in the you know in i mean chemistry is all about bonding Mm-hmm. of elements and right. atoms and right. and um and there's these um and gravity even physics it's all about you know you know attraction and connection and and things sticking together um and he as you know talks also about in biology the the you know trees and plants and flowers you know rooting into the ground is a form of attachment and connection so so he really, I, when I first heard that, I, 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 at first I was a little bit skeptical uh, as to, is, is he, is he kind of taking this too far? Mm-hmm. A little bit. There was a mm-hmm. part of me. And then the more I thought about it, I, the more I really realized like, this is a universal principle mm-hmm. and the way it shows up in us is, is through these, you know, human social connections and, and at the core of that, at is this is this idea of attachment yeah so i know and i i just i didn't um i never had heard newfeld speak from that place about biology and chemistry and it really it it shifted me a little bit more too because it's not that i had any doubt because i've lived it 
I've experienced attachment and what it what it feels like in in family. But I think it made it feel more. Mm, yeah, it made it just feel like it was. It's just part of the 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 universe we live in. The yeah, the very fabric. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so um, there's a few really core key ideas that um, help start to explain how attachment works not just what it is and one of those is that um there is a it's there's an attachment there are complementary attachment instincts one in the the child and one in the parent and the um the instinct in the child is a seeking instinct it's if that child doesn't feel secure they will um, seek that uh, uh, attachment connection. The core of the parent side of that complementary instinct is one of providing. So, you know, it's when we hear the baby cry, we we also pursue that proximity. We want to run to the crying. We want to go to and comfort, but it's not, um, a seeking for something it's a seeking to provide something mm-hmm. so these two complementary instincts sort of act on both parties to facilitate that closeness and connection and that's important because um and this and this made me bristle the first time i heard it so i'm i'm, I'm thinking how to say it but because the you know the dynamic is not one of two similar uh, energies. It's it's actually hierarchical, and and in this sort of in this day and age of of equity, and the idea of, of hierarchy can sometimes be off putting or 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 even um, threatening, but um, this is. Once I understood it better, I realized how important this this concept was. And and basically, what Newfeld is saying is that in the attachment dance, as he sometimes calls it, it is the parent who is responsible for the fulfilling the needs of the child, and never the other way around. And and if if the child feels responsible. For the doing that for the parent, it actually throws off the the attachment dynamic and and leads to all kinds of problems. So um, sometimes I'll hear parents sort of want things to be more fair, and they'll say, "Well, I'm doing this for my," especially when they're when it's with a teen, which which is a little bit more understandable and and maybe even a little bit more reasonable like i'm doing this for them they should do this for me and i don't mean to imply that there's no give and take in relationships especially with teens but but we want to be really clear about the idea that the the optimal attachment dynamic is one in which the parents are protecting caring for providing and 
taking responsibility for the child and and the child is not doing the same thing for for the parent um the 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 idea is actually to free the child of the burden of trying to either protect oneself or to find someone who will protect them and care mm-hmm. for them because that need is so deep that if if like i said before if the if the child doesn't feel that they're going to be seeking that and all their energy will be directed towards the seeking mm-hmm. and if that seeking is unmet then they can get stuck and preoccupied with seeking for that this is the insecure attachment and um and so when we provide that for them they their nervous system knows that they're once it's met that it knows it can relax and then channel all that energy that was going into seeking into growth into the maturation Mm -hmm. process into development and so there's this um simple but i think deep idea that the the goal of a secure attachment is to free the child from their preoccupation with seeking and when we free them from that preoccupation then they can relax they can rest and their energy flows in a different direction mm-hmm. okay i love okay. that yeah <laughs> so a couple i have a yeah, few, please, a few thoughts for for one so um and if i recall one of the key components to this is that the parents are also especially in those really young years there's an anticipatory meeting of their needs right so the kids are, the kids aren't you know most of the time a, a young baby can't tell us what they need so there's a way that we're anticipating is it, is it a, a dirty diaper are they hungry you know we're sort of guessing and trying to figure it out and then maybe eventually we we get a little better at that but even as they get a little older there's a way in which they're we're we're meeting their needs that they might not even know they have. They might have an emotional need that we meet, and they aren't able to articulate it yet. And that's part of the journey of them becoming more emotionally intelligent about their own experience. And when you talk about so yes, you would say that that's accurate, right? So this is that's part of it. It's actually the ability to anticipate needs that aren't being spoken. That um, the the dependent child knows the parent is going to be able to meet them. Yes, yes, and yes. There's, well... Well, yeah, go ahead, because I'll hold my other thought, because I really want to make sure that you are able to expound. Okay. About yeah, it. yeah, because it's complicated, because... Um, and this is one of the ways in which attachment theory has been super helpful for me, is that really, if, if you understand that the main need is just for a secure attachment then as see as kids start to become more verbal like my two and a quarter year old can say i want a i want a bottle i want a yogurt i want a this i want a that but she doesn't of course she doesn't realize that even though she might be hungry she also physically hungry she's almost certainly if she's cranky hungry for attachment and mm-hmm. and so there's a way in which even when when kids do get verbal, um, there, if we take, it's a it's a it's a complicated uh, thing because if we if we take 
we don't want to ignore the information they're providing because if she's saying she's hungry for food then that is probably true but it's very difficult for children or of any age to articulate their attachment needs Mm -hmm. and so um if we provide their attachment needs for their attachment needs then we're we're meeting them on a deeper level and and that that physical hunger i think the two even get mixed up a lot because when when we're very young physical connection and nursing and food are all kind of interconnected and so you know this is a, a thing that we happens frequently where where you know eating and becomes such so associated with with love and connection so and i think that's why mm. so so there's a way and i'm going to take it one step further here that when kids go from just expressing their needs to becoming demanding there's a way in which um we can fall into a trap if we are we get overly focused on trying to meet their demands because now they are running the show they're saying i want this and 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 trust me i know this is a hard a hard one to navigate i i'm for me at least um i want this and then you go okay wow they really sounds like they're really needing that and so then i'm trying to be responsive but if i if i cater too much to their demands uh to my daughter's demands then in a sense i'm putting her in control which even though it could seem like that would be in some ways preferable for her it actually isn't because ultimately the most fundamental thing that she needs is to feel like she has someone who's got things under control for her she needs to feel Mm. safe and she needs to feel protected not like she's the one she doesn't want to be running the show even though part of her wants to be running the show Mm -hmm. so 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 the the expression of needs or preferences or wants or desires is is a tricky one it is so tricky and that's actually that's part of what was on my mind when you were talking and I was glad you went into it because it is a tricky space to well I think there is something to be said for differentiating between needs and preferences too you know there are a lot of times when I know I eat when when I know what I really needed was connection and so um, I'm positive that if I'm doing that I'm, I know I happen to know I'm not the only person who does do that but also I'm imagining that that does probably start at a young age where sometimes we, you know, our child does want to eat and maybe a, a cuddle would have been, you know, would have satisfied that. And, but the problem is a lot of times once we get to the point where we think that that's what we need is the food, then the it would have had to have been more anticipated up front. Like we would have had to have been making sure their cup was filled before they even asked for it and that's I guess what I mean about some of the anticipatory stuff is that um, you know attachment theory the idea that we are there to fulfill their needs it's really uh, yes when they're very young we're fulfilling their physical needs and their emotional psychological needs as they get older they're able to fulfill more of their physical needs 
you know, they can, they can start to go get the food that they want on their own, or they can, you know, teenagers, we certainly, we're not fulfilling every physical need of theirs anymore, but still fulfilling their emotional and psychological needs to some degree. You know, I mean, I certainly feel like that's my, still my role with my teenagers is that um, I, I want them to have autonomy. And I also want to be the person that they come to, you know, when, when they're going through something. So I know for me, I, I, it wasn't as hard for me to differentiate this for some reason. I don't know why. And I really want to pick that apart and understand why I didn't have a harder, I, I, I didn't have a lot of times where my kids did like tipped to the place where they became demanding. But I, I do think that there's something that needs to be discussed there about this idea, like how a person, I could imagine a person would be listening, thinking that, okay, I, I don't want to just give them everything. That's not what we're saying. We're not just saying like, yes, just be permissive and allow everything and give everything. We're also not saying, you know, that you're the end all be all and anything you say is, you know, you know best. It's some dance between the two. It's some dance between us knowing, yeah, actually probably giving them the candy bar before they eat dinner is probably not the best thing to do, at least not every night. And then, (laughs) you know, but even though they're asking for it. Mm Mm-hmm. But then there's this other part, you know, so, but there's this other part that can be acknowledging the emotional aspect of that with them. So let me give an example. Like if a child wants to have a candy bar and it is before dinner, that there's a way that I think we can be acknowledging the emotional or psychological needs without giving them what they think they wanted. Ooh, I like that. Right? So, because the key thing is that they feel attached, but they, they feel heard that they feel like we are there, we're, we're not missing, we're not miss, missing what's going on here. So they wanna, they wanna feel like they're, they've been, uh, like, um, that we, we care. And, but they also wanna know that we're taking care of them and we do actually, and there is a way that actually stopping them from some things is an acknowledgement of we care for you. So in that situation, I'm thinking that what's most important is, okay, no, it's actually kind of a no for me that they're not going to get the candy bar before dinner. So I can already know that that's a no. And I might say, oh yeah, that's just, that's a no. And I so get the feeling that you have because maybe if my kids are a little bit older, I actually said this to them. I know the feeling of being so hungry that all that I think can satisfy that need is a candy bar. And so I totally hear you. And I totally acknowledge why you feel that way. And I also, dinner is is three minutes away from being served. And I'm positive, because I know this, that once you start eating, you're actually going to be okay. So I've given them so many things in that, right? So I've given them the sense that I hear them. I've acknowledged them. I've protected them from themselves in some ways, right? And I also told them that their suffering that they're experiencing right now isn't going to go on for too long. They're going to be okay. You know, and that we, that I'm sure of it, and they can trust me. And then they go to eat, and they realize, oh yeah, actually, mom was actually right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff being taught in that. They're te- they're being taught delayed gratification. They're being taught they're being taught to like listen to signals of that much hunger, but that they actually survived it. So there's all kinds of things being taught in that by being in this relationship where I'm holding a container of what their needs are that aren't just a responding to every demand as if that demand is actually what they really need. Yes, so what yes. do you, what do you, how would that. you? No, I love that. And I think that, um, that there's a way in which 
being clear that it, 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 that we can go to, I think, either either extreme. One would be to go, oh, I, I either I'm afraid of the sort of tantrum that would follow if I set, set a boundary or I just don't want to deal with, you know, the, you know, grief I'll, I'll get. So I'm just going to just give in and say yes. And, um, or on the other side, we can, we could focus only on the behavior and just go, you know, that's a, that's ridiculous. No. And set a firm, firm boundary, which is probably the better option, but then not see that there's an opportunity there for meeting some deeper needs that the, that the, in this case, I'm picturing a teen, but the child doesn't even know he or she is having. And so I think saying like, you know, that's a no and, and then continuing on and, and meeting some of those needs. Well, I think that's, it just feels super skillful and useful and, yeah. and kind of, you know, for both parties, right? Yeah. It's, I think it would lead to an, it would reduce the amount of grief we would have to deal with. So that's a win. And I think it would, like you said, it's it's teaching them all sorts of little micro, like really important lessons in a very micro kind of situation. Yeah. And um, so I love it. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge that if you had a very young child, like I'm just thinking about like when my kids were teenier and they would want something that they couldn't have, obviously the number of words I would use would be way fewer and the, the anticipated tantrum would be there. I would probably know it. So like when my kids were a little older it would be much easier for me to have a dialogue with them like that or even just say it and they'd be annoyed but they'd get over it but when they were little and they you know we'd have the for me like i remember the grocery store you know wanting the candy bar while we were checking out and i wasn't feeding them immediately so there wasn't i didn't have some of those solutions but i did say no and then i just sat with the big emotions that they have like you know acknowledging that i know that's really upsetting and meeting them in their emotional drama, if you will, and not needing to change anything. Because that's the other thing you said, the part about like you might put a boundary down but not acknowledge it. But sometimes we inadvertently or even maybe purposefully kind of shame our kids for having a desire. You know, and we, we can say to them like, you know, what, what are you thinking? Of course you can't have a candy bar before dinner. And, you know, because we're impatient and we're embarrassed because we're in the shopping, you know, we're in the store and all these people are looking at us and... There are all kinds of there's all kinds of pressure, but when we end up shaming our kids around things like that, it's it's really getting in the way of the attachment, you know. And so that's why I think that the 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 acknowledgement of what they want and the the, the sort of like the no and mm-hmm. you know the no and I also am really understanding why you feel that way or want that. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So it's so great. I mean. And there's, there's, there's so much, I just want to say there's so much subtlety in, in everything we're talking about because I could see those same words being used in a sort of te- slightly joking, teasing way, in a fun, mm-hmm. playful, teasing way. Like, um, like, what are you crazy? Of course, no way. You're, yeah. you're, what, what is wrong with you? I mean, you might not want to go that far, but you get the idea. It's like totally. you could, you could say that same as opposed to something really serious, where you're like, that is ridiculous. That, how dare you even make such a suggestion? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make it more obvious the distinction here, but, but, um, 
but so I think it has to do with where we're coming from, right? Mm, that's such a good acknowledgement. Like, like if we're coming from a place of, of re- like building the relatedness, that's going to further our attachment connection. And if we're coming from a place of sort of, um, um, well, I'm not even sure exactly, how, but in that in that example, it was more of like just pure frustration or even anger um, or disappointment um, that is going to have a different impact. Right, because it's not like the parent says, oh, I'd like to damage our relationship right now. (laughs) But there still can be that question that we ask ourselves, is this going to be, you know, in the best interest of of deepening my relationship with my child or does this have the potential to harm my relationship with the child but when we're not thinking that can happen anyway we mm-hmm. probably do but you know you remind me that it's such a good point though there there are these ways of just being cute and sweet like you know picking that scooping them up and you know laughing about like you silly that you you know you that you want a candy bar before dinner mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know and sort of make it um diffuse the situation through connection yeah that can happen too right which really can sometimes be really effective and then sometimes not yeah they can be relentless and then sometimes we have to set that clear boundary yeah so so i'm wanting to get a little bit more into the theory around attachment these i think these are great examples of how it can play out in real world situations yes keep going sorry that's no that's no no please (laughs) i I welcome it um i'm just thinking one of the things that really blew my mind about neufeld's framework was that he has this um it's not just that we attach there's different ways that we attach and those ways evolve uh, in an ideal situation um with the first six years of life each year there's a different way that becomes possible to attach he's very clear to point out that most of us don't get all the way through this this uh, progression without getting stuck along the way and so um, for me hearing about this really kind of was it was both interesting helpful but also personally illuminating in a somewhat it wasn't challenging it was just raw it felt very raw because it was going to such uh, core elements of my own ex- life experience. So so I think it's helpful to listen to this both through the lens of thinking about a child, but also thinking about one's own childhood. Um, so here we go. Thanks everyone. That's a wrap for part two of our attachment series and we invite you to check out part three that'll be launched next week it's gonna be good it's I promise. gonna be good so and and we ask you to subscribe to share to rate and review super helpful so yeah. we really appreciate it we do appreciate it all right thanks take care bye bye <laughs>